First Timothy chapter six, verse twelve. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we need your help to fight in your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we can lay hold of the eternal life that you give us through him. We need your Spirit working in us, conforming us to the image of Jesus and helping us to fight as He fought. And so today, as we consider your Word, as we consider the truth in it, as we meditate on what you have to say about holy warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil, Give us grace to not just be hearers of it, but to be doers of it, to desire to go out from here and to live it, to put it into action, to be warriors, to be soldiers, faithful soldiers of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Come on in. There you go. There are few subjects that are more that are that have more universal interest than warfare. People from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every time period have always had some level of interest in warfare and fighting and battles, young and old, men and women, rich, poor, learned, unlearned, everyone is interested in wars. Every nation has his has its historic battles, historic wars that in many ways probably define who that nation is, what that nation is about. But there's another warfare of far greater importance. And of course, that warfare is the holy warfare of the Christian faith. It's not a war that's waged by nations the way other wars are. It's a warfare that concerns every Christian man, every Christian woman, every Christian boy, every Christian girl. And the warfare is spiritual. Spiritual warfare against evil. And that's what we're talking about this week. That's what this, this whole weekend is about in terms of these talks. Dealing with sin is dealing with our enemy. So if you want to know how to deal with sin, you want to know how to fight the good fight against sin. It's the fight for your soul. More specifically, it's your fight for your soul. It's the fight that everyone must fight who would be saved. If you, if you will be saved, if you would be saved, you must be a fighter. You must engage in the battle. You've been enlisted. You are a fighter, a soldier. And spiritual warfare is as real and as true as any war the world has ever seen. So when you, you, know, you start thinking, you know, a preacher gets up here and starts talking about spiritual warfare, you think, okay, that's the thing preachers talk about, right? It's a metaphor. You know, we have wars and, and he's going to talk about spiritual warfare. But, but really, we need to see it the other way around. Spiritual warfare, the war that you are in, the fight that you are in every day of your life is the most important. It's just as real, just as true as any other war. It includes hand-to-hand combat. 
It inflicts wounds. It has sieges and assaults, victories, defeats. It induces fatigue. It includes watching and waiting. There's a handout. It includes watching and waiting, and it makes you tired. It has consequences that are awful, that are wonderful, that are tremendous, that are unanticipated, that are tragic. In earthly warfare, the consequences of nations are usually temporary. In spiritual warfare, when the fight is over, the consequences are unchangeable and eternal. This spiritual warfare is what Paul is talking about in 1 Timothy 6, verse 12 that I just read, where he writes, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Do you see how he puts those two things together? It's not just that you know, fighting is optional. There's some, some Christians who, yeah, they're soldiers. They're, they're warriors. And there are others that are on the sideline. No. Fighting the good fight and laying hold on eternal life go together. You can't separate the two. So if you want to be saved, if you want to be a Christian, then you must want to be a fighter. You cannot lay hold on eternal life unless you are willing to fight that good fight of faith that Paul is talking about. So today's talk has three points. Really, I'm just going to cover two, though. I don't think I would be able to get all three points in in under an hour and a half. So we'll, we'll just shoot for the first two points. But on your outline, there are three points. And a lot of the insights from this talk come from an essay that was written that I just read last year that was written in the, eight, the 19th centuries, the 1800s, by a man named J.C. Ryle. Anybody ever heard of J.C. Ryle? Okay. He wrote a book called Holiness, which I highly recommend. If you don't get anything else out of my lecture, um, then get this, that you need to go read that book by J.C. Ryle called Holiness. And a lot of the insights come from, from one or two of the essays in that book, particularly the essay on the fight, fighting the good fight. And the outline comes from a lot of the way he structured his essay, and so I'm adding my insights and thoughts and experiences into this. And we'll, we'll make observations and applications along the way. There's going to be a lot of scripture. So if you have a pen... I didn't write all the scriptures that I'll be reading today, but if they have been, it might be a good idea to write them down along the outline as you're going down. That'd be one way to take notes. So number one on the outline is that true Christianity is a fight. True Christianity is a fight. Now, I use the word true here because it's possible to be a baptized Christian but not be a true Christian. Now, some might argue whether that's really a good way to put it because then you're, everybody's always wondering whether they're a true Christian or not. But as I'm preaching through the book of John in my church, I'm seeing more and more every time I get to the next passage that John in his gospel lays it out just like that. There are some believers who believe in Jesus unto salvation and there are some that the gospel of John calls believers who are not believers. That's the only way I can think about it. So all, all the theological controversies in the world 
can try to say otherwise, but it doesn't change what I believe is the fact that there are genuine Christians and then there are people who are Christians in name only. There are true Christians and there are false Christians. Genuine Christians and nominal Christians. Nominal means in name, in name only. And you know what the difference is between the two? A lot of answers to that question. But the difference is that in the true Christian, there is a real fight. In the true Christian, there's a real fight. In the false Christian, there really is no fight, no discernible fight. Every true Christian on the earth is engaged in the fight for his soul. But you never see it. It's hard to find this fight in a nominal Christian. You just don't see it. And as I, as a pastor, that's one of the ways I, I, I think about people and I look at people as I disciple them or I talk to them or I get to know them. I, I, I see, okay, this person, he's fighting. She's fighting. There is a fight here. And then some people, you can't see that. You wish they were fighters. You wish they wanted to fight. There's no fight in them. They know nothing of spiritual strife spiritual exertion, spiritual conflict, self-denial, watching and warring against the world, the flesh, and the devil. They know nothing of the spiritual disciplines that characterize the soldiers of Jesus Christ. But that's not the true Christianity that Jesus founded or that Paul preached. True Christianity, the true Christian faith is a fight. The true Christian is called to be a soldier. That's one of the metaphors that Paul uses. And he must behave as a soldier until the day of his death. See, the goal of your life is not ease, comfort, security, good retirement plan, good job. Francis Schaeffer used to point out that there are two main values. We might better call them two main idols of of modern Westerners. And they're personal peace and affluence. Right? Personal peace and affluence. We want comfort, ease, and we want financial security. If, you, if you're born, born in the West, you just deserve that, right? That's the American dream. It's what we work for. It's what we make sacrifices for. But these are not the values of the soldiers of Christ. This is true whether you live in the wealthy West or whether you live in some obscure tribe in Africa. You must, you cannot relax your way to heaven. You can't relax your way to heaven. True Christianity is a fight. Therefore, true Christian is a fighter. So who's your fight against? Who's our fight against? We've got to know the enemy. If we're going to be fighters, we've got to know who the enemy is. You can't have a battle plan. You don't even know who the enemy is. Well, your, your fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the government. It's not against the Muslims. It's not against the Baptists. It's not against the guy on Facebook who disagrees with your theology or your politics. Those aren't your enemies. Your enemy is the world, the flesh, and the devil. These will be your 
foes until you die. It will be your never dying foes until the day you die. And unless you gain victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil, all your other so-called victories are in vain. They're pointless. Your, your heart is corrupt, the devil is busy, and the world is ensnaring. So either you will fight or you will be lost. Those are the two options. You're, you're either going to fight until you die or you're going to be lost. The difference between heaven and hell is the difference between being a fighter and a pacifist. Now, I'm not saying that your fighting is what earns your way to heaven or that's how you save yourself or your, your sins are forgiven because you're a fighter. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that those whom God saves become fighters. So the two paths are the pacifist, who's not a fighter, and that's the path to hell. The path to heaven, the path that those who have been saved are on, is the path of the fighter. So, number 1A in your outline. First, you must fight the world. The temptations and the snares of the world are subtle. They sneak up on you. They infiltrate you. They infiltrate your heart. You don't even know that they're there, that they've come in. But, you know you've been infiltrated by the world when you love the things of the world, as John puts it in his epistles. When you're infatuated with the things of the world, the music of the world, the entertainment of the world, when you fear the world's scorn, you worry about that. You desire the world's acceptance. When you secretly wish you could do as others in the world do. You envy them for their freedom, their so-called freedom. I love Pastor Booth's analogy about the train on the tracks. How there's real freedom on the tracks, not off the tracks. When a train goes off the tracks, it's not freedom, it's, it's a train wreck. But you desire the world's acceptance. You secretly wish you could be like the world. That's when you know the world has infiltrated your heart. When you wish you didn't have to be so extreme, so odd, so weird all the time. All these things are spiritual foes that will beset you if you're not vigilant. You can't be passive with the world. You have to be active. You have to be proactive in fighting against the world. You must conquer the world on your way to heaven. 1 John 5, 4. Everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. So if you are born of God, you are a conqueror, which means you're a fighter. You're conquering the world. True Christians don't love the world. They don't love the things of the world. They conquer the world by faith, John says. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's convicting, isn't it? The love of the world, the love of the things of the world, and the love of the Father don't mix. They can't exist side by side. Romans 12.2 Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good pleasing and perfect will of God. Through Christ, the world has been crucified to me, Paul says in Galatians 6, and I to the world. 
Next, you must fight the flesh. Saved people carry with them still, even though they've been saved, carry with them a heart that is still prone to evil. Everyone can identify with that statement, right? A heart that is weak, still susceptible to sin, to self-deception, lying to yourself. To keep your heart from going astray, you must daily struggle, daily wrestle in prayer. Here's how serious the Apostle Paul took his flesh. 1 Corinthians 9.27 I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now if the Apostle Paul thought he could disqualify himself, at some level that was a possibility. And if he thought he could do that by not discipline disciplining his own body, his flesh, his desires. How arrogant must a person be to think that his or her own bodily passions, desires, are not all, are not all that serious. Paul knew the struggle. He knew the war that goes on every day in every person, in every Christian. Galatians 5.17, St. Paul writes this, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So Paul knew this struggle of having a war, an inner war, a war inside you between the flesh and the Spirit, the capital S Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The Christian has the Holy Spirit And there's a war between the flesh and the spirit. In another place, he puts it this way, Romans 7, I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? By the way, Paul wasn't saying that our bodies are bad, the physical world is bad, the material world is bad, and the spiritual world is good. What he was saying is that these bodies, our persons, our souls that are in bodies are fallen. We are they're plagued with sin. And that comes with certain things that we have to fight. But here's the gospel truth for those who are walking with Christ. Listen to what Paul says in the same chapter, Galatians five, seven verses later, in verse twenty four. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So you see what Paul does here. He First he says, okay, there is this war. No doubt this war going on. And it, sometimes it keeps you from doing the things that you desire. He's, he's recognizing that. He's not denying it. But he says for Christians, there's this underlying fundamental truth, which is that really, definitively, objectively speaking, those Desires that flesh has been crucified. It's been killed on the cross with Christ. And so if you let it win, it's, it's really you trying to take it down off the cross and let it have life that it doesn't have on its own. Sin only has life that we give it because it's been killed. It's been crucified. Satan only has power that we give him. Sin has no power over us. 
Colossians 3, 5. Therefore, put to death what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed, which is idolatry. So, the, the, the theology here is this. It's really quite rich and beautiful. The theology is your flesh, your sin has been killed on the cross, therefore put it to death. But you see, it's not you putting it to death in your own strength. God's not saying, okay, person on your own that I've done nothing for, put sin to death. What He's saying is Christian for whom I have died and forgiven and taken away sin's power and death's sting, you put put to death what I've already definitively put to death for you. I've, I've gained the victory. Now you do the mop-up operation in my power, in my strength, on the foundation of what I've done. The third enemy is the devil. Now if you were a bunch of Pentecostal Christians, and maybe there are some Pentecostals here, I don't know, that's not my point. But if you were a bunch of Pentecostal Christians, I would have no problem convincing all of you that your enemy is the devil, right? Uh, I, I, I grew up in the in around Springfield, Missouri, which is the headquarters of the Assemblies of God Church. So a lot of my friends were Pentecostals, and they were quite aware of the the warfare in the in the air, as Paul says, the principalities and the powers in the air, the devil and his demons. They were quite aware of that aspect of our warfare. Sometimes maybe they emphasized it too much. We don't want to see a demon behind every bush. and We don't want to blame every sin on the demon. It's not Satan's fault when we sin. We don't want to do that sort of thing. We don't want to give too much credit to the principalities and the powers in the air and then fail to recognize the former enemy that I just talked about, the previous enemy, which is the flesh. After all, think about this. If there, if there were no, if, if God were to eliminate the devil and all the demons right now, just, just evaporate them, just extinguish them out of existence right now, that we would still, you would still be tempted to sin, right? You, you would still have your flesh. You would, you would still be tempted. Apart from God's grace, the fallen nature inside each one of us is enough to plunge us headlong into evil all the way to hell apart from God's grace. We don't need the devil to sin. But if you're a Reformed Christian, if this were a bunch of Reformed Christians, okay, and I'm assuming you probably are, you might have the opposite problem. You're aware of the battle within you. You, you hear you know, your theologians and your pastors talk about the flesh and the war between the flesh and the spirit. But you may need to be reminded of the oldest enemy of mankind, which is whom? The devil. He's not dead. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, Satan has been going to and fro in the earth, walking up and down, trying to accomplish one goal. And what's that one goal? The ruin of your soul. The ruin of every person's soul would be his goal. In Job 1, verse 7, when the Lord asked Satan, where have you come from? Where have you been? What's Satan say? 
from roaming the earth and walking around on it. He's a roamer. He doesn't slumber. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't need to take breaks. He's always going about as a lion on a hunt for prey. Always hungry. Always looking for someone to eat. 1 Peter 5.8 Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion looking for someone to devour. Now, when you think about this, um, realistically, Satan, the head demon, is not everywhere. He can't be everywhere all the time. He's not omnipresent the way God is. So don't make the mistake of ever thinking that Satan has the same sort of powers that God has. He can know everything. He can be everywhere and that sort of thing. He's not omnipresent like God. So it's possible that none of us in this room have ever been tempted by the head demon himself directly. But the head demon has thousands, maybe millions, I don't know, of lesser demons who are doing his bidding. And they're all prowling around. Not just the devil, not just Satan. They're all prowling around looking for souls to overcome, to eat, to devour. They want to consume They can never get enough. They're all roaming the earth and walking around on it. And you should have no doubt that you've been tempted by some of them. Maybe not by Satan himself, but by some of his demons. The enemy is unseen, but always near. When you walk, when you lie down, when you get up in the morning, when you eat, when you go to work, when you're in your car... The principalities and the powers are there, spying out your ways, desiring to cast you down into hell where they will spend eternity. The devil and his armies of evil spirits, they have a plan. They have a plan even when you don't. They have thought through all the paths to hell that would most appeal to you. They know that better than you do. But you see, when they present these paths to hell, they don't present them as paths to hell. That's not how they sell them. The devil doesn't show up as as the darkness that he is. He shows up as what? An angel of light. Yeah, of course. That sells. He's been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. John 8.44 He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. Of lies. The demons don't know you nearly as well as God does. But they know your weak points far better than you do. And you can be sure that they're always executing a campaign. A well thought out campaign against your soul. Remember what Jesus tells Peter in Luke 22:31. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Now you shouldn't be scared of the devil. There's nothing to be afraid of. You shouldn't be shaking in your boots at these realities. That's not the point here. He has no power over you if you are trusting in Christ. If you're walking with the Lord, 
The kingdom of the devil is no match for the kingdom of God. The, the lion that is the devil is no match for the lion of Judah. Satan, Satan and his minions have been definitively and decisively defeated at the cross in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so, as Martin Luther says in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, their doom is sure. It's not. A, there's no question mark about how this is all going to end. Their doom is sure. But you still must daily resist them if you wish to be saved. If you want to be on the road to heaven, then you must accept your commission to be a fighter. Your victory is sure, but you still must fight. Your fighting is not the foundation of your victory, but it must be what you do in response to what Christ did for you, which is the foundation of your victory. Christ has won the war and He's enlisted you to fight. There's still, as I said, a mop-up operation that you need to participate in until you die. Satan has been defeated, but he still roams and he still schemes and he still devours anyone who will give him a foothold. A wise general once said, in time of war, it is the worst mistake to underrate your enemy and try to make a little war. Christian warfare against the devil is no light matter. It's not a little war. You're enlisted as a soldier of Jesus Christ. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 2, verses 3 and 4, Endure hard things as a soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So your fight is not only against the world, it's not only against the flesh, it's against the devil who began all of this back in the Garden of Eden. Therefore, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 11-13. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm. One of the last week at my church, I talked a little bit about the armor of God and how it's rooted in Isaiah, and not so much in what the Roman soldiers were wearing in that day, but more in Isaiah. The book of Isaiah talks about you know the belt of righteousness that the Messiah is going to wear. And one of the applications I made there is that Jesus is the first one to put on the armor of God. It's His armor that He shares with us. And another application, we could go even further, really when we're putting on the armor of God, we're putting on Christ Himself. Paul also exhorts believers to put on Christ, put to death the old Adam, and to put on Christ. And so to fight this battle, you must daily, constantly, continually put on the armor of God, the whole armor, which is putting on Christ Himself. 1 Corinthians 16.13 Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Matthew 26.41 Remember Jesus tells His disciples that are falling asleep, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
The Christian faith is a struggle. It's unavoidable. It's a fight. It's warfare. Don't forget this. Don't be lackadaisical about it. Get a plan. Watch. Pray. Devour Scripture the way the devil wants to devour you. Go to church every Sunday. Sing sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with the body of Christ and by yourself in the car. Listen to the Bible. Listen to sermons. Study theology. Study your heart. Know your weaknesses. Ask God for help. Ask God to fight for you. The book of Joshua and the holy war of the Old Testament, the book of Joshua, one of the things we learn as we read through the book of Joshua is that it's the Lord fighting for them. It's not them fighting and gaining the victory. So ask God to fight for you. Ask Him to show you what it means to fight faithfully. Ask Him specifically the things that you're dealing with and encountering to help you. Devise your counter schemes against the devil. He has schemes. Do you have counter schemes? What are they? Do you have a battle plan? Do what Paul tells Timothy to do in 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. Wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. So don't make shipwreck of your faith by failing to wage good warfare by holding the faith and a good conscience. Do you hold the faith? Do you have a good conscience? In the opening chapters of Revelation, remember in the first few chapters of Revelation, it's written to seven different churches. And those are great, great chapters to read on holy warfare because one of the things that John, Jesus, keeps saying there is to be an overcomer. And, and if you read that, there are a lot of promises about overcoming, but there are no promises to anyone in those seven churches except to those who overcome. You can't find any promises that apply to those who do not overcome. And in fact, you find the opposite for people who do not overcome. So there are overcomers and then there are people who are defeated. And the promises, the blessings come to those who overcome. And the only ones who overcome are the ones who fight. One D in your outline. It's a fight of absolute necessity. You can't remain neutral and be and just sit still in this fight. This line of action might be possible in the strife among nations, but it's utterly impossible in the conflict that concerns your soul. There's no place for a policy of non-interference. Can't keep quiet and just let things alone, let things be. You cannot be a pacifist. You can't be a man or woman of peace in this warfare. To be at peace with the world, the flesh, and the devil is to be at war with God and to be on the broad path instead of the narrow path. And the broad path leads to destruction. So you have no choice. Your only two options. I guess if you did have a choice, it would be to fight or to be lost. So you really don't have a choice. 
Either you will overcome or you will be overcome. That's the end of every human being that's been born on this planet since Adam and Eve. Everyone ends as an overcomer or someone who has been overcome by evil, by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Genesis 4-7 Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And so it's a fight of absolute necessity. Next, it's a fight of universal necessity. Applies to everyone. No rank, no class, no age, no sex, no ethnicity, no profession can plead exemption. No one can escape the battle. Everyone gets called up. Everyone's been enlisted. When you were baptized, you were enlisted in a war. Spiritual warfare. So pastors and non-pastors, old and young, high and low, educated, uneducated, poor, rich, gentle, simple, kings, subjects, landlords, tenants, employers, employees, married, unmarried, all alike must carry arms and go to war. No one is exempt. Everyone by nature, this is why, because everyone by nature has a heart of pride, of unbelief and selfishness and laziness and envy and worldliness and evil desires that must be put to death in battle. There's no other way to do it. All of us are living in a world beset with snares and traps, pitfalls for the soul. All of us have the devil nearby whose soldiers are busy and restless and relentless and malicious and crafty and good at what they do. As J.C. Rao put it, all from the king in his palace down to the pauper in the workhouse, all must fight if they would be saved. Next, it's a fight of perpetual necessity. The fight never ends. In this life, the fight is never over. When you're on your deathbed, the fight's not over. It allows no breathing time, no truce with the enemy, no peace treaty, no ceasefire, no suspension of hostilities. On weekdays as well as on Sundays, in private as well as public, and home, at home as well as abroad, in little things as well as big things, the Christian the Christian's warfare must go on. It does go on unceasingly. Remember, your foe never takes a vacation. Whether we're talking about the world, the flesh, or the devil, there's no vacation in any of those realms being taken. So as long as you have breath in your body, you must keep your armor on. You're still on duty. You must keep on fighting. You must fight till you die. So my overarching goal here in this first point, first point is to exhort you to diligence and vigilance. I want you to become a hard-working soldier. I want you to be a wise and watchful soldier for Christ. I want each of you to take care to make sure your Christian faith is real, genuine, true. I want you to make your calling and election sure, as Peter says I've seen many so-called Christians 
who show no sign of having been enlisted in the fight. Their Christianity is void of anything like the fight that Scripture says is necessary for every believer. They eat, they drink, they go to sleep, they wake up, they go to work, they make money, they spend money, they entertain themselves, they get married, they have children, they come to church. They know the right answers, but they appear to know nothing of the great spiritual warfare that is the Christian life. There's no watching, no struggling, no agonizing, no contesting, no sustained prayer, praying, no fasting, no serious Bible study, no fellowship with the saints that ever goes below the surface at least. There's no evidence that they know God. Make sure that's not you. But I also want to comfort you. I don't, I don't just want to beat you up here. I also want to comfort you. And I hope I'm not beating you up at all. I want to comfort you that if you know anything of an inward fight and an inward conflict, if you know anything about this battle that I'm talking about, this resonates with you, you think, yeah, that's, that's me. That's, I have that. I, I, that's, it's raging in, inside of me then that's, that's a good thing. It's not everything, but it's something. And when I say it's not everything, what I mean is this, your foundational comfort, your foundational assurance of salvation is Christ alone. The focus of your gaze should never move from, the crop, from, from Christ and His cross. That's where laser beam focus there all the time. That's where your assurance is. That's where your comfort lies. However, if in your peripheral vision you see inside of you this spiritual struggle that I'm talking about, then you can take comfort in that as well. So-called Christians who are at peace with the devil or the world or their own flesh are characterized by apathy, stagnation, deadness, indifference. When you talk to them, you really can't seem to get a conversation going about the things of the Lord. But if you find in your heart anything of the flesh warring against the Spirit, and the Spirit warring against the flesh, and as Paul says, sometimes the, the result is you don't do as you wish you had done. If you see that, then thank God for it. It's a good sign. I'm not saying accept defeat. It's never good when, when you do as you don't wish you had done. I'm not saying that. But you can thank God if you see that battle going on in you. It appears that you're no friend of the devil. That's what that means. So take comfort in this. The child of God has two great marks about him. In, in, in people who are, as John puts it, born of God, there are two marks. Two marks in every child of God. He is characterized by his inward warfare and by his inward peace. Inward warfare and inward peace is what God puts inside of every one of his children. Everyone born of God. Inward warfare alongside inward peace. Not peace with the world, flesh, and the devil, but peace with God. A peace that passes all understanding. 
So if you know that inward warfare, then you have at least one of the two. So you can take comfort in that. Let's move to point two. And as I said, we'll just do points one and two so you don't have to wonder if I'm not even halfway finished here on your outline. True Christianity is a fight of faith. Now in this respect, Christian warfare is utterly unlike the conflicts of the world. I've been making comparisons to the conflict of the world. But in this sense, Christian warfare, the battle you're fighting, every Christian fights, is utterly unlike the conflicts of the world. This warfare doesn't depend on on the strong arm or the quick eye or the biggest bombs or the swift foot or the fastest planes. None of that matters in this warfare. It's not waged with physical weapons. It's waged with spiritual weapons. And we're not going to talk about all those spiritual weapons. I'm just going to talk about faith. Because faith is the hinge on which victory turns. In this warfare, faith is the hinge on which victory turns. Success depends on believing. Your success depends on, depends on you believing God and His promises, His Word, and His Son. The Christian life is a fight that is fought by faith. So the first sub-point, 2a, it's fought by faith in God's Word. Faith in the truth of God's written Word is the foundation of the Christian soldier's character. Your character as a Christian soldier goes back to goes all the way down to your faith in the truth of God's word you know you can stand on it because you know it's not going to move Hebrews 11.6 without faith it is impossible to please God for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Every soldier of Christ is what he is and does what he does, believes what he believes, thinks what he thinks, behaves the way he behaves, orders his life the way he does for one simple reason. At bottom of all of that is one thing. He believes certain truths that are laid down in Scripture. He believes certain propositions. He or she believes propositional truths that Scripture teaches. He believes those and then he acts on them. He believes them in his heart and he acts on them in his life. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 2.13, one of my favorite verses on Scripture, on the Word of God. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And we also thank God continually because when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, You accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. There was a question in the Q&A portion before lunch about the Scriptures. And and when people ask questions and question the, the authenticity and the truthfulness of Scripture, what do we say? And... One of the things that, that, that I think is most important in conversations like that is to remember 
at least just remember in your own heart, maybe it won't come out too much in, in what you say, but remember that you believe Scripture. You know Scripture is true uh, because God has opened your eyes. And you can't make an argument for that. You, know, you can't. There's no way to give that to another person. God has to give that. There's no arguments, historical reasoning that can cause a person's eyes to be opened. Right? And so, really, you part of the reasoning for why you believe Scripture is not something that you can uh, make an argument for. Because it's not something that they have. It's not something that they share if they don't believe. Because, did you hear what Paul says there at the end of that? The Word of God, he's praising them because they, they believe that the Word of God is not a human word, but, a, but the Word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. So the Word of God is only at work in those who believe. If people who do not believe, if people who do not believe the Word of God cannot, it's not working in them. That's why they don't believe in it. And so there's this great divide that only God can bring somebody across. And so, as I was telling someone after that, you don't wake up in the morning and tell yourself that you believe the Word of God because of all of the historical and textual and manuscript and, and arguments and the rational arguments. You don't. You believe the Word of God because you have a relationship with God in Jesus. You know Jesus. And He's opened your eyes and when you read the Word you hear the voice of God because you're one of His sheep. And you can know that and believe that and never forget that and never let any arguments that you haven't heard before that maybe stump you move you from that position of knowing God is real, knowing that His Word is true, knowing that you know Jesus through His Word and His Spirit. And every person's life is driven by certain principles that the person believes deeply. And this is true for Christians and non-Christians. Your life is no different. You are what you are and you do what you do. You think what you think. You behave the way you behave. You order your life the way you do because you believe certain things are true. Or maybe because you don't believe certain things are true in some cases. For the soldier of, soldier of Christ, everything he does and says and thinks and hopes stems primarily from the reality. The reality that has been revealed to him in the pages of Scripture. That's at the core. That's at the root. That's the foundation. Pages of the Bible that he reads, that she reads, is the source of what they do and think, how they live. Now many are fond of talking about a Christian faith that's free from dogma, free from doctrine. You know, we, we don't have any creeds. We don't have any confessions. Our only creed is Christ, which is a creed. But this sort, this sort of thing may sound pious. may sound spiritual. But Christianity without doctrine and theology is like a body without bones and sinews. If you are a true follower of Christ, then a biblically informed and theologically grounded faith is the very backbone of your spiritual existence. You can't fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil unless you have engraved on your heart 
certain principles, doctrines, truths that you're absolutely convinced of, that you know are true, that you believe deeply. I'm not saying you have to be able to write an academic paper on those theological truths, those doctrines. But you must believe them. They must be at the root of your religion. You must be able to think about them and talk about them. Here's one way to think about what I'm trying to get at. Anytime you see a person wrestling valiantly against sin, against his flesh, and he's trying with all of his might or her might to overcome, then you can be sure that you are observing a person who believes in the great principles, the great truths of the Gospel, the truths of Scripture. There's no such thing as right living apart from right believing. And right believing is nothing other than an unshakable faith in everything that Scripture says. Next point, last point. The Christian life is a fight that is fought by faith in Jesus Christ. If faith in God's Word is foundational, to the, if it's the foundation of the Christian soldier's character, then faith in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ is the heart and the soul and the mainspring of the Christian soldier's character. So, so if the Word of God is, is the core, then Jesus Christ, the person and work of Jesus Christ, is the life that comes out of the core. The Word of God is the, the acorn, then Jesus Christ is the fruit or the tree. They, they go together. The Word of God written and the Word of God made flesh. You can't believe in one without the other. If you believe in one truly, you will believe in the other truly. Listen to 1 John 5, 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of of God. Only believing in the Word made flesh is how you overcome. The Word of God, capital W Word, the Word made flesh, is the one who makes the promises found in the Word of God that's written on the pages of your Bible. The Christian soldier can see his unseen Lord. That's what faith is. Faith is seeing with your eyes, the eyes of your heart, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 1, it's seeing the invisible. That's, that's what faith is. It's not seeing what, with these eyeballs, it's seeing with the eyeballs of your heart. So the Christian soldier can see his unseen Lord Jesus, the eyes of faith. And when you see Jesus, if you're one of His and He's opened your eyes, then you see a Savior who loved you, who died for you, who paid your sin debt for you, who bore your sins on the cross, carried your transgressions and nailed them to the cross, who rose from the dead for your justification, and who intercedes for you right now at His Father's right hand on the throne in heaven. He's your advocate. He's your Savior. If you belong to Christ... If you're one of His fighters, one of His soldiers, then you know Jesus and you can see Him by faith. Trust Him. 
you feel the peace and the hope that only He can give. Therefore, because of this, because of what He's done for you, you willingly do battle against your foe, which is also His foe, the foe of your soul, the foes of your soul. You were bought at a price by Jesus. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6. You were bought at a price, a high price. It cost a lot. It cost God a lot to purchase you. So you're not your own. You're now a temple of the Holy Spirit. You're a temple of God. The presence of God that we read about all through the Old Testament of leading Israel and living in the temple. The presence of God is in you. You're that temple. You're the tabernacle where the Shekinah glory lives. So you're not your own. You were bought at a price. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, honor God with your body. That's what Paul says in that same chapter. You're a soldier of Christ. You've been enlisted to fight the good fight. The good fight of faith by faith. By faith in Jesus Christ. True soldier sees his own many sins. True soldier sees his wayward heart. He sees the the tempting world. He sees the dart-throwing devil. But he does not despair because he also sees a mighty Savior, an interceding Savior, a sympathizing Savior. A Christian soldier sees the cross and the blood and the righteousness of Christ and he believes that it belongs to him because he knows that he belongs to Christ. And believing this, he cheerfully fights on. Believing this, he cheerfully fights on. Not because it's easy, because he's called to do it. Because he's been given everything he needs to do it successfully. He fights on confident that he will be more than a conqueror to him who loved him. The secret to successful fighting is the habitual, lively faith in the presence of Christ and the readiness of Christ to help. That's, that's one of the keys to success. So do you believe Christ is with you? Do you believe He is near you? Do you, do you believe He wants to help you? That He's ready to help? Can you see Him with the eyes of faith? If so, then your fight will be victorious. You will overcome. You will overcome. According to your degree of faith, you will either fight well or you will fight poorly. With strong faith, you'll win victories. You'll be triumphant. With weak faith, you'll suffer setbacks and losses. Those of you with the most faith will always be the happiest and most comfortable soldiers because you'll experience the most victories. That's just the simple reality of how it works. When you're sure of Christ's love for you and God's protection of you, when you're sure of what He has done for you on the cross, then nothing can make you anxious. The normal anxieties of warfare, the normal pressures of life, they'll be real. can't get rid of them, but they'll sit lightly on the person who knows God personally and who can see His loving Savior sitting on the throne 
in His resurrected body. If God is for you, then who can be against you? Jesus is on your side. What else matters? The fight's hard. The fight's tiring. The fight requires a lot of sacrifices. In fact, it's always easier to give up. At every moment along the way, every second along the way, it's easier. It'd be, it'd be a lot easier to give up. There's a, there's a way easier path. Always. Just right here. Just right alongside you. Every step you take, that, that easier path follows you. It beckons you. But nothing will enable you to endure the fatigue of watching and praying and struggling and wrestling against sin like the indwelling confidence that God is on your side and therefore your success is sure. The great, the great news in all of this is that your success doesn't depend on you and your strength. It depends on the God who is in you. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And this kind of faith is what the shield of faith is. This shield of faith that quenches all the fiery darts of the wicked one is where your victory lies. Faith in Jesus, faith in His Word. The more faith you have, the more victory you will experience. The more clearly you see Jesus and the things eternal. The more you have those in focus and you're, you're seeing those clearly, then the more you'll be able to resist the devil and you'll force him to flee from you. It's impossible to overrate the value and the validity, or the vitality, excuse me, the value and the vitality of faith in Christian warfare. If you want to fight successfully, then ask God for faith. There's nothing wrong with doing that. That's scriptural. Pray for continual growth of faith. You need more faith. And God is willing to give it. Remember in Luke 17, 5, the apostles told the Lord, increase our faith. They realized this truth. They realized that faith is what it's all about and we need more. And we know that you can give it. Please do that. Please do that. Please, Jesus, increase my faith. That, that, that should be a daily prayer for all of us. Or let your daily prayer be like the father of the sick child in Mark 9 who said to Jesus with tears coming down his face, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, I trust you, but I, help my unbelief. I want to trust you more. I'm trying. He sees this battle, this war, and he knows that more faith is better. Okay? His theology didn't say, well, I, I believe and you accept, you accept real faith even when it's kind of weak, so I'm good. No, he, he realized that more faith is better. Please give me more faith. So fellow brothers and sisters in arms, watch over your faith with a fierce jealousy. Think about it more than you do. 
your unshakable faith in God's Word and your personal faith in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, is the fortress of your it's the fortress of your Christian character. Your faith in Jesus, your faith in His Word is the citadel of your Christian character. And your spiritual safety depends on the strength of that citadel, the strength of that fortress. If you love life, you must stand guard and you must stand firm in the faith. This is how you will fight well. And I'll end with one more quote from J.C. Ryle. Without fighting, there can be no holiness while we live and no crown of glory when we die. Let's pray. Father, thank You for enlisting us in the warfare. Thank You for making us soldiers of Your Son, Jesus Christ. Because we know that means You have saved us. You've rescued us from the darkness, from the domain of evil. And You've brought us into the kingdom of light where we are called to follow the great warrior, Your Son, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. To take up our cross and to follow Him into battle. Help us to do this courageously. Help us to fight valiantly. Help us to fight by faith. Help us to fight in Your strength and not in ours. Help us to glory in our weaknesses because that's when we are strong and Your strength is made perfect in us. Help us because we need Your help. Give us faith. We believe in You. We trust You. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.